Chapter 9 of For God and Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. For God and Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter 9 After Sir Fox's death, and the steer which naturally followed, things grew very quiet with me. Almost my whole day was devoted to what Mr. Cartwright had called grinding the weapons for his coming attack on prelatical government. In spite of my books, I was very lonely. Mr. Drake was at this time almost always away on duty. Abner Castle was full of Spanish prisoners, who had been seized in the neighborhood ports in pursuance of the Queen's recent order, whereby she shocked to make reprisal for a like order issued by her loving brother-in-law, the King of Spain, and that some recognition might be made for the labors of the Inquisition so generously bestowed on the English prisoners in Spain. Mr. Drake was ordered to preach at Abner every day. It seemed a great delight to the old navy preacher to go and rail before them at the Romish church, and it was, no doubt, most medicinable in this case. For never saw I a man more furious against Spain than he was at that time, and not without cause. Frank Drake had sold his bark and sailed with his cousin, Mr. John Hawkins, in the great trading expedition which Sir William Garrard and company had fitted out for the Guinea coast and the Indies. His kind old kinsman suffered him to venture his small savings with him, and had given him a petty officer's place in the fleet. Out of pity for the wrongs he had suffered at Rio de la Hacha, under Captain Lovell, of which I have already spoken. We were all rejoiced at his good fortune, for it was as pretty a sail of ships as ever left the coast. There was the great Jesus of Lubeck, Mr. Hawkins' admiral, the Minion, his vice-admiral, the smart bark of fifty tans, called the Judith, beside three others, the Swallow, the William and John, and the angel. It was, moreover, no fast secret that the Queen's Grace and many of the council were sharers in the venture, so that it lacked not any kind of furniture, either of men or arms, and great things were expected from it for all concerned, even for the lowest mariner. Indeed, I myself had adventured a moderate sum being persuaded by Drake how profitable the Negro trade had been and would be again. Of this expedition nothing had now been heard for more than a year, and we began to grow anxious. At last a Spaniard who had put into Plymouth gave Mr. William Hawkins intelligence that his brother was on his way home laden with the untold spoils of a town which he had sacked, 
and of prizes which he had taken on the seas. We hardly knew what to think of this, for such dealings were not at all to John Hawkins' liking. He was a wary, forecasting man, and I always thought looked on trading, especially on Negroes, as more profitable than piracy, as indeed it was. Thus, he had always labored, while in the Indies, by just dealing, that the planters and merchants should stand well with him, and secretly support him, when, as happened sometimes, he was forced to carry a high hand over governors who refused to trade quietly. Mr. Drake was sure the report was another Spanish lie, and was not surprised when, some time after, he heard that some Spanish mariners had been bragging over their caps that Hawkins and all his men had been entrapped and put to the sword far inland, and the whole undertaking brought to naught. I need not say with what alarm and anxiety these reports filled us, for they sounded far more like truth than the last. It in no way decreased our fear for Frank's safety, when shortly afterward the Queen seized the treasure ships of the Duke of Alba, which had been chased by privateers and pirates into Southampton, Plymouth, and Foy, and were still lying there, since the shipmasters knew not how to get through to the Netherlands. We could not doubt then that the council had certain news that all we feared was true. Everyone now gave up all hope and thought only of revenge and reprisal. When tidings joyfully reached us that the Judith, one of the ships of the expedition, had put into Mounts Bay, crowded with twice her proper crew and in command of Captain Drake. All kinds of rumors now arose of what had happened, mingled with news of how the Spaniards had laid an embargo on British ships in the Netherlands and in Spain, and imprisoned every Englishman they could clutch. The Queen replied undaunted, with like boldness, and every prison along the coast was packed with Spanish sailors, and every town hall with treasure and rich cargoes. Such doings very soon caused it to be reported, with greater certainty, that the council had certain news of Mr. Hawkins' death, and the destruction of all his men, when to our great relief it was said that the minion with the general aboard and a half-starved crew had come home. We were more hopeful now, but hungrier than ever for news. Mr. Drake brought us every kind of horrible tale from the Spanish prisoners at Abner. I think they devised them in pure revenge for his preaching at them, and the more they lied, the more he rated their idolatry and superstition. It was some time before we heard the truth. Frank sent us letters, in which I noted that he wrote himself, Captain Drake. 
saying that Mr. William Hawkins, governor of Plymouth, had sent him up to inform the council fully of what had occurred and that he was detained in London upon that business. So things stood with us when one morning, a month or more after Seal Fulk's death, I was awakened by the sound of a gruff, loud voice, such a soldier's effect, in conversation with Lashmer's somewhat strident tenor. Good master soldier, cried Lashmer, I tell you he is still abed, and you cannot see him these two hours. Nay, by this bright honor, but I will see him, said the other. And yet I think you will not, said Lashmer, and yet again, by this bright honor is a good oath, and a gentleman's oath, and one that may not be sworn to a lie, or a thing that is not true, unless, indeed, there be provocation, for provocation, look you, master soldier, excuses many things, it is your great peacemaker. Why, this is monstrous logic, returned the bass, and such as I never heard all the time I was sergeant, groom under the senior John Peter Pugliano, squire of the emperor's stables, a man of most fertile Italian wit. What need of the philosopher's stone, if by mere logic you can make of provocation a peacemaker? Well, softly now, and I will show you, answered Lashmer, whose talk served often to while a dull hour, since he had been to Cambridge, and gleaned, I know, not what stray scraps of learning that careless students had dropped in his way. I will show you how a man will come to swear the peace of another for some assault, or battery, or mayhem, or anything, and that other shall show provocation. Then shall no peace be sworn, and they shall be at one again, for it shall appear that he who buttered the other did him no wrong, seeing there was provocation in it. So they, that thought they had quarreled, shall find by this same sweet provocation that they have known. Then must I provoke all men, said the sergeant groom, if I would live at peace with them. Aye, by this bright honor, said Lashmer, then, no matter how often you get a bloody coxcomb, yet shall you never have quarrel with any man. Then will I now most lovingly break your pate, said the other, that you may stand my friend and bring me to your master, for my master the most excellent squire, Henry Waldive, bade me spare no pains to see your master as soon as possible. Whether my servant's logic would have been put to this severe test, I cannot say, for at Harry's name I sprung out of bed and cried from the window that I would see the messenger forthwith. I hurried from my chamber to find Harry's servant, discussing his morning ale with Lashmer, 
he rose to a stiff military position as I entered, and made me a most lofty salute with his Spanish heart. He was a tall, soldierly-looking man of about forty years of age, with a peaked beard and very fierce mustaches that had been nicely disciplined in the Spanish fashion to curl nearly up to his eyes. By his side hung a very terrible esquiavona, which he wore instead of a rapier, after the fashion of the German raiders, considering as he afterwards told me that the broadsword was the only fit weapon for horsemen. It had a great steel closed hilt, presenting such a defiant tangle of rings, hilt points, and twisted bars, after the latest pedantic fancy, as to make the beholder tremble to think what the blame must be. Indeed, his whole appearance was foreign. He wore a large ruff, a thing as new to me as his sword, and his doublet, which showed clearly the marks of a corslet often worn over it, was pinked and slashed in the farthest fantastic fashion. If you come on the part of Mr. Waldive, said I, receiving his salute, you are thrice welcome. In truth, I bring you, sir, that most excellent and soldierly young gentleman's most full and lovingly complete commendation. Know me at your worship's service, as Alexander Calverin, sometimes sergeant groom under the senior John Peter Pugliano, squire of the emperor's stables, and now body servant and master of the horse to that most proper gentleman, Mr. Henry Waldive. All this he said drawn up as stiff and soldierly, as though he were mounting guard over the emperor's own bedchamber. His presence much impressed my peaceful follower, though to me he was a thing to smile at lovingly, for somewhere in his face was a simple, kindly, almost childish look, that was strangely in contrast with his fiercely curling moustache, his loud, gruffy voice, and his very warlike bearing. When came your master home? I asked, for in truth, I was greatly surprised to hear of his return so suddenly. But a week ago, said the sergeant, since which time we have been lying at my lord of Bedford's house in London, for Mr. Waldive had matters to report to the council ear, he could calm down here. And have you brought me any message from him beside his commendations? I asked. Saving your worship's worship, said the man. He would have you ride over at your worship's most early haste to Ashtid, since he would have some speech with you together with some poor soul, who, to judge by his most unhorsemanlike carriage, is a mariner or sailor. Gave he the name of this same sailor? I asked. That he did, a name he had that sorts well, with one who splashes about all his life in that most base element called water. To be short with you, 
It is one Captain Drake, though I hold it most false, heraldry, to apply so dignified and soldierly a title to a seafaring man. Well, we can talk of this as we go, said I, in a mighty hurry now to be off. I will ride back with you now, if you will wait till Lashmer had saddled our horses. I tarried but to eat my manchet and drink my bowl of ale, since I hold a marshal in the morning with a good draught, sweetened and defecated by all night standing, to be very good and wholesome for the eyesight. As I mounted my horse, I saw Calverin watching me with a most judicial air. I must own I felt no little comfort and gratitude to my guardian for his good training to see him nod a distinct thought qualified approval to himself when he saw me in the saddle. Know you what business your master has with Captain Drake? I asked as we rode out of my gates, my mouth watering for news. Nay, no I, answered Calverin. Yet I hope it will be known, since I hold it unseemly for a gentleman and a soldier to have near communication with sailors. Yet Captain Drake, I said, has great love and respect for land soldiers. Has he indeed? replied the sergeant, looking very pleased. A most notable sign of his good sense, and had he said horse soldiers, it would have been a notable sign of his better sense. How make you that good, Master Culverin? asked Lashmer, whose hunger for an argument was by this time getting the better of his awe of the stranger. It is good of itself, Master Lashmer, said Sergeant Culverin, for when I was Sergeant Groom under Signor John Peter Pugliano, Esquire of the Emperor's stables, he was wont to say, and mark you, he was a man of most fertile Italian wit, that soldiers were the noblest state of mankind, and horsemen the noblest of soldiers. They were masters of war, he said, and ornaments of peace, speedy goers, and strong abiders triumphers both in courts and camps. In truth, your only salvation is to be a horse soldier. Take that of me. Seeing Lashmar was on the point of a desperate charge upon this monstrous position, I changed our subject quickly by asking news of Harry. It was but three weeks ago, sir, said Calvary, that we got your letters telling of Sir Fulk's Waldive's death. We were in winter quarters, whither we had gone when the campaign ended so ill for us with the fall of St. Jean D'Angeli. Then we tarried not to drum or trumpet, but came straight homewards in the first ship that sailed. It was a pity it fell so. There was pretty warfare there and most profitable for a gentleman to see. For, look you, sir, a soldier can learn more from defeats than victories. Take that of me. We were present all through last year's campaign, 
and rode in M. Ardalot's regiment when they dropped us so soundly at Jarnak. After his death, we were attached to the admiral himself, and so continued till our second route at Mont Contour. It was an evil time for the Huguenots, but a pretty schoolhouse for a scholar of arms, and my master was growing to be a most sweet soldier. I tell you, sir, his name was on every tongue in the army. So high a courage and discretion had he shown in all passages of arms we had made together. Ah, oh, said I, there is little need to tell me that. I knew well what men would say of him when the time came to show what staff was in him. And so did I too, sir, said he. As soon as ever he came to the emperor's court and rode down to the tilting ground, I said to Signor Jean Peter Pugliano, esquire of the stables, There is a soldier, said I, for his seat was as well as a man could sit. It won my heart, sir, to see him. From that hour I was his servant. I craved leave to direct his exercises under the squire and grew to love him as my own horse. Was it then pure love that made you follow him to England? I asked. Indeed, sir, I think it was. After he had been with us a year or so, he took it in his mind to see some service in the French wars. I begged to go in his train, for I loved him, and could not see him go to the wars without a proper following or some old dog to watch over him when dangers were thick. And you gave up your honorable post of sergeant groom for his sake? Aye, sir, and willingly, for he promised to carry me to England with him after he had had his fill of fighting. My vowels yearned for the land I had not seen for twenty years. Indeed, sir, there's no man loves the smoke of his own country that hath not been signed in the flame of another soil. Take that from me, sir, saving your wisdom. Then you are of English parentage, Sergeant Calverin? Yes, sir, though many think not, because of my name and a certain carriage that comes to men of trouble. Yet I am English-born, sir, and never knew father or mother, save an English great piece on the Calais Barbican. Then save you, sergeant, from your kinsman, said I, thinking he was jesting. Since the Moors call great pieces the mothers of death, you and it are the only children I ever heard that they had. You're married, sir, but I just not, said the sergeant drawing himself up very stiff on his horse. What I say is sober truth. The first human eyes that ever saw me, as I could ever hear, were just those of an old gunner, who found me one night in the mouth of his culverin. He, good soul, took care of me. She is the only lass I ever loved. He was wont to say, but I never thought she would be mother of a son to me. So he took me home, and his mates and he would have the priest 
Kirsten me Culverin, after my mother and Alexander, because they said I must be born to be a mighty soldier. Truly, sergeant, said I, seeing how serious he was, though I had much ado to stop laughing. A most honorable and soldierly decent. Aye, sir, you may say that, he answered, looking round at Lashmar, from whom came a sound of choking laughter. A most soldierly and royal parentage. She was a good a piece as ever was cast and stamped, look you, with King Harry's own arms, rest his soul, to say no more, for modesty's sake. It is not one or two who have ruled the ribald merriment at what I am telling you. And with that he laid his hand upon the great steel hilt of his broad sword, and glared so terribly at Lashmar that I thought the poor lad would have fallen from his saddle from pure fear of the bristling of the sergeant's fierce moustache. I do not think Lashmar ever laughed at Sergeant Calvering again, at least not in his face. Indeed, it was not many who did. Most men feared his sword too much, and those who knew him best and were not afraid loved him too well. I think three men never greeted each other more warmly than Frank, Harry, and I when I reached Ashtid. It was like summer to see them again, yet I found them much altered. Harry seemed shocked by his father's death and looked very sad in his black clothes. His face was bronzed, his short beard neatly trimmed to a point, and the scar scars healed stretched across one temple. Yet I thought I never saw him look more manly, handsome or lovable in spite of the foreign look his travels had given him. Captain Drake, too, was changed. His eye was as bright, and his ways as cheery as ever. Yet, when he was not speaking, I could see in his face a harder and sterner look than there used to be. His dress, too, was very different to what he had worn in the old days, though plain, it was of good staff, and cut according to the fashion. He wore, moreover, a smart rapier, and had the air of a gentleman, though without having lost his sailor-like looks. Will you want to know why I sent for you, Jasper? said Harry, as soon as our greetings were over. Nay, that do I not, said I. So long as you sent for me, that is enough. Well, but I had a good reason, answered Harry. I met Captain Drake in London, whither he had come on business, as he will tell you, as he was homing hither to see his father. At Upchurch we journeyed together, and he told me, Tell him, Frank, what you told me, and then he will know why we sent for him. Well, lad, said Captain Drake, setting himself down for a long tale, a sailor's will. You remember how I wrote to you of the voyage which I made to Cape de la Vela in the Indies with Captain Lavell, 
the year after her brush with the carvel and how it all ended in the wrong I suffered from the Spaniards at Rio de la Hacha for no cause but their accursed treachery. Yes, that I do, said I, for he had written to me about it in Cambridge, and Mr. Drake, too, had told me fully of that most wicked dealing with his son. Well, that was well enough, Drake went on, a plague on the false papist hearts. But what came after was worse. And at one time, we feared it was worse again, said I, for we thought we had lost you as well as our venture. But how come it about? We looked for nothing but success under Mr. Hawkins. And nothing but that should you have had, said Drake. Merely, should we have signed the King of Spain's beard, and filled some most noble packets beside our own, but that Jack Hawkins was over-scrupulous with the traitors. Things went well enough at first, in spite of bad weather, especially for me, for of Cape de Verde, we fell in with a Frenchman from Rochelle, who had taken a Portugal caravel. This Jack Hawkins, chased and took, and made me master and captain of her. We called her the grace of God, and a good name too, seeing how God graced our venture. For we drove the Portugals, whoever we meet them, and before we left the Guinea coast, we had gathered as fine a cargo of black flesh as a merchant need wish to see. Being well filled up with what we sought, we sailed for the Indies. My luck stood by me still. For when Captain Dudley of the Judith died, Cousin Jack gave me his place and made me full captain. We found traffic on the main beat hard because the King of Spain had most uncourteously charged that no man should trade so much as a peso worth with us. Yet Negroes are dear to Don's heart, and there are ways, lad, there are ways that no known better than old Jack. So we had reasonable trade at mighty good prices, both in black flesh and our other merchandise, till we came to Rio de la Hacha. We were but two ships when we anchored before the town, the angel and my lady Judith. The rest had been sent to Curaco to make provision for the fleet, so they thought to try their scurvy tricks there again, and refused us water, thinking thereby to starve us into selling our negroes for half nothing. The treasurer, who was in charge, had fortified the town and got some hundred or so of harquebusiers behind his bulwarks. So we could not land, but took a caravel in spite of all their shot, right under the noses, and rode there till our general came round in the Jesus. They soon found that an English cock would crow as loud and louder than a Spaniard, for old Jack set ashore two hundred small shot and pikemen and took the town. It was no less than their discourtesy deserved, 
and they suffered no harm, for every man of them ran clean out of the place at the first bark of our snappers. I think it was only a little comedy to please the king of Spain, for master treasurer and all of them came in at night to trade, and before we left we had two hundred less black mouths to fill, and a pretty store of gold and pearls in our hold. We had then such a brisk trade, and no bones made all along the coast after our persuasions at Rio de la Hacha, that when we came to Cartagena, our traffic being nearly done, we tried nothing against it, save the minion saluted the castle with a few shot from her great pieces. While we landed and took certain botijos of wine from an island, just to drink their health, leaving woolen and linen clothes there in payment. So we bore up to Florida, but being taken in a furry canal, which I believe the Lord sent to guide us, we were driven into San Juan de Ulloa, the port of the city of Mexico, as you know. Now listen, lad, listen to what God sent us. There in the port at our mercy, entirely in our power, were twelve galleons, laden with two hundred thousand pounds worth of gold and silver. Two hundred thousand pounds, think of it, if you can, without going mad, for I can't. Yet, in spite of God's plain guidance, as I told him again and again, Jack Hawkins set them all at liberty without touching a peso, fearing, as he said, the queen's displeasure the simple fool, if he touched the goods of her most loving brother-in-law, huh, had we known how the brave queen was going to deal with her loving brother-in-law's money in her own fair ports of Southampton and the West, Jack would have listened to me when I told how best to please her grace. Well, it was no good. Not a peso would we touch, but only asked leave to refit and victual. And now, lad, comes the worst of all. Next morning, we saw open of the heaven thirteen great ships, being the plate fleet and his wafters, a sight to make an honest protestant man's mouth water. Lord, Lord Jasper, I cannot think of it with loving kindness to Jack. Just see now, lad, we had complete command of the heaven. Not a fly boat, not a pinnace could enter or live without or yeah. To keep the Spaniards outside in the north wind was only the other way of saying present wreck to every rag and stick of them. And that meant well nigh two millions loss to the Spaniards and heaven knows what gain to us in wreckage, and float Sam, and trifles we should have had for our trouble in saving crews. Did God ever show a greater mercy to his faithful people than that? I ask you, sir. You know better than I, because you are a scholar. Yet Jack Hawkins 
let his scruples stand before the plain will of God, and would make conditions with them. Would I could have told him that our lion-hearted queen was doing in the narrow seas with her dear brother-in-law's belongings, but we didn't know. Then he would have heard the voice of the Lord aright, but as it was, he was stubborn, and let them all in on conditions of peace, and save fitting and victualling for ourselves. To the which was passed the word of Don Martin Enriquez, Viceroy of Mexico, himself, who was with the fleet, a pax on him till his hand has squeezed him dry, and then he knave may go hang. I need not tell the rest, you guess what came, what must have come, it was like night after day, relying on all their solemn words and papistical oaths, no less than on the hostages they had given us. We labored together two days peaceably to bestow the ships properly in the port and prepare ours for refitting. A good part of our ordnance we set ashore upon an island in the mouth of the port, which by the conditions was to be in our possession. On the third day, after we had let them in, when we were about to set the carpenters to work, and were all dismantled, I could see things were going treacherously, in spite of their fine words. Soldiers were marching to and fro, and ordnance being bent upon us. Jack sent to inquire what it might mean, and Don Martin Enriquez passed his word of honor to protect us from treason. Still the preparation went on, and Jack protested again, this time with much effect, for his messenger was seized, a trumpet blown, and in a moment all was in a roar and blaze. Out of the smoke that hid the quay and ships, we could see the glitter of harness and pikes and halberds, and the glow of matches. Hundreds of soldiers rushed upon us, and thrust out to the island in crowded long boats. In a trice or men ashore were overcome and cut down, and our ships swarming with Spaniards. Lord, what a fight it was then, tooth and nail, claw and heel. We went at them. Such a roar and din was as my ears, at least, had never heard, till it lulled again, and not a Spaniard was left alive upon our ships. It was glorious work, but we had no time to think of it. No sooner were we clear than we cut our head fasts, and warped out on our stern fasts. But though that saved us from boarding again, it did little good, for the treacherous dogs were masters of the island, and our great pieces, as well as of their own on the ships and the platform. Still, for a whole hour, we made a great fight of it, in which we sank two of their great ships and burned another. By this time the Jesus was dismounted, and another wreck. She, being the admiral, had aboard of her all our treasure, twelve thousand pounds in gold, lead, 
besides negroes and merchandise. It was impossible to bring her off, so Jack resolved to abandon her, after taking out all she had. To this end, we drew her off and set her in front of the minion, to keep off the shot of the Spanish batteries, and so save our whole ship from destruction while we were at our work. Fort Minion was the only ship we had now that would sail, except my Judith, which I had got safe off after the fight. But the Spaniards saw our game and fired two other great ships of theirs and loosed them down wind at us. They may call us cowards, Jasper, but it is a fearful thing to see two fire ships, a mass of roaring, crackling flames, and each twice and thrice as big as yourself, bearing down on you. Who can blame them if the crew of the Minion grew afraid and cast her off from the Jesus, in spite of all their captain or the general could say? So suddenly was it then that the general himself almost perished in trying to come aboard the Minion, and many were drowned in the attempt and many left aboard the grand old Jesus with the treasure to fall a prey to those rake-held traitors. I quickly lay aboard the Minion with the Judith and took out of her all I had room for, and so, at the mercy of God and looking for nothing but death, seeing how overladen we were and without proper provisions, I made my way home as speedily as I might. Jack takes it unkindly that I left him, yet, God knows, I did it for the best, trusting, by his help, to save my ship and all those aboard, if such a thing were possible to any man. Who knows, if I had tarried with the general, I should not have fared like him, and had to set half my crew ashore to suffer heaven knows what miseries at the hand of Indians and wild beasts and Spaniards, which is worse. Aye, and to lose half the rest from famine and sickness. God be praised for his mercy to me, and judge between me and Cousin Jack. So Frank Drake ended his relation of that famous adventure in the port of San Juan de Ulloa and fell to walking fiercely up and down the room where we sat. I knew not what to answer him, for I was almost as much moved as he, and firmly believed it was the will of God that they should have destroyed the two Spanish fleets. It is strange to look back upon now, yet I cannot wonder that I thought as I did, seeing what my masters had been at Cambridge and, above all, in what a perilous case England then was. Never, I think, was reformation in greater danger than at that time. There were already constant rumors of the disquiet in the north, the rumblings of the papist storm that was soon to burst from thence were making themselves heard. The Scots queen sat fooling the nest to which he had flown for refuge, in our eyes, like some unclean bird, 
that bred new traitors every day. And Spain cried louder and France blustered more fiercely against the one stout heart which would not bend to Rome. The queen still stoutly held the Duke of Alva's treasures, which he had seized. Our port were close to Spain, and those of Spain to us. Sir William Winter was fitting out his expedition to relieve Rochelle with victuals men and furniture for the Huguenots, Papist prizes, Spanish, French, no matter what, were daily pouring into our ports upon the narrow seas, and Don Geran de Espes, the Spanish ambassador, was a prisoner in his own house in London. It was said at all hands that the times could not long endure the strain, and we looked for war to burst out every day. What wonder then, if, when the whole host of Antichrist seemed to be gathering about us, I, like Francis Drake, saw the finger of God in the hurricane which had put it in our power to make so big a blow at his enemies, and read in the disaster that followed a judgment on those who spared to spoil the Egyptians, that was what the scholar said to the sailor. I, and honestly, believed it too. Have no doubt, Frank, said I. It was the Lord's will that you had smitten and spared not. It was his plain and manifest mercy to you to put it in your power to bruise the serpent's head. Would get Captain Hawkins had listened with your ears? That is what I tell Harry, but he is shit, said Drake, eagerly. And Harry, to my inquiring look, only laughed a little low laugh, so full of complete amusement that it made me shudder, and there rushed to my mind the horrid Italian proverb that we heard so often, Inglese Italianato e Diabolo Incarnato. Do you not think then, I asked of Harry, that it is God's will that we should smite Antichrist and all his host? Well, let that pass, lad, said Harry, laying his hand gently upon my knee. I know not too well what God thinks of us, but it is my will, and England's will, that we should smite, and as you say, the King of Spain, and that is why I sent for you. Ever since he came home, Frank has been striving to get redress from Spain through the council. But things have come to such a pass with embargoes and imprisoned ambassadors that all hope of that is at an end. So Frank is going to fry his own fish. Tell him what you are going to do, Frank. Drake looked at Calverin and Lashmer, who had remained in the room, with that same strange stare of his, as though to see whether he might safely speak before them. Shall they go? said Harry. No, said Frank, after a pause, and the sergeant saluted him, and Lashmer looked 
like a happy ship. They are neither men to blab, yet we must be close, for it would seem there is a Spanish ear grows on every village cross. Therewith Frank Drake unfolded to us his mighty project, of which I think known, but his heroic soul had yet dreamed, that glorious enterprise which, before a few more years were gone, was to make England's heart to live with pride like a young stag, and set her fair body throwing with the wild untamable life that was to make her what she is. The time is past for child's play, he cried with glowing face. The time is past for nibbling at our enemy in the narrow seas. It is past for peaceable trade with them. If we are to live and dare worthily of our manhood, we must bite hard and deep in their vitals. Where is that lad? Whence comes their life? Where, but from the Indies, there lies the heart of Spain, the heart of Antichrist, open and unprotected, for a man who dares to try. I have seen and I know. They are no match for us. See what we did at San Juan de Ulloa. In spite of their numbers, in spite of their treachery, we saved two of our ships, and they lost five of theirs, and all, the three times the minion size at least. I suffered there, but still I learned a lesson which, by God's help, they shall rule the teachings of. But he who attempts this must not flinch or quail. Jack Hawkins is no man for it, but I can do it, lads, under God I can and if I do it, I shall be under no man's flag but my own. Frank, said I, I believe if there's a man in England can attempt this thing, it is you. But be not hasty to throw away your life, which England needs. Think of those unknown seas for which you can get no pilot in England. Think of the power of him you attack. I know, lad, I know answered Drake, as calm and confident as ever. I have thought of it. I will have a pilot, and that pilot shall be myself. It may take a year or two, but at last I will know those seas as well as any Spaniard of them all. Then I will strike, and let them see how I can revenge myself. Revenge is the Lord's, and by his chosen people he does his work. To you, and such as you, he looks to help me in this, and I have come to ask if you will join me in working the revenge of God. End of chapter 9